The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums Podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. And welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for November. Coming up, we look at the Paradigm Millennia 1 speaker package. We also look at the new 3D projectors from Optoma. And we discuss new cinema technology being spearheaded by Peter Jackson. And joining me on the Home Cinema Podcast this month is Russell Williams and Steve Withers. Good evening, guys. Evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. And uh, before we kick off and into the reviews for this month, we have to mention the ongoing Tash Growing for November. And Team AV Forums are doing well. All of us here tonight are taking part, and uh, it's probably just as well that this is audio only, uh, going by some of the pictures that have been posted on the forums. Uh, in Russell's case, courtesy of the local police station in week one, by the looks of things. Well, it wasn't one of, wasn't one of my better sides, but I look like an absolute mo-god now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, at this moment in time, we've managed to raise around about uh, £850, and uh, we've also published some video appeals to try and pull at the heartstrings and get more donations, plus the lovely girls from Bonnie Rig. Uh, who've also made a very informative video uh, with all the facts about men's health uh, and also to, pe- to appeal to your donation giving side dear listeners and um, Steve, are you growing a more? I'm trying Phil, I may have to resort to some boot polish before the end of the month uh, unfortunately it's, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite uh, blonde so uh, in certain <laughs> lighting you just can't see it at all <laughs> I just like got a shadow on my top lip uh, Now I have to say that I've never grown a moustache before and uh, ever and now I know why, because uh, mine's just turned out ginger and grey and <laughs> can hardly make it out as well. I mean, it is there, it's itchy, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it does itch, doesn't it? I don't know why guys have these like permanently. I mean, as soon as I get to the 1st of December, it's gone. I, I seem to be the only person in my office at work that's not complaining about the itching, because I only have a shave about once every two weeks anyway. Yeah, I, I've got to say I don't feel like Tom Selleck. I thought I was going to feel like Tom <laughs> Selleck, but I don't. I, uh, I don't look cool. Uh, Steve, I think we're just probably not the most hirsute men around, I think. I, I don't think uh, moustache growing and, well, you just have to look at your head. I mean, it, it obviously offsets that. Growing hair it? at all is, is probably <laughs> problematic for me. Yeah. But Russell, I mean, you've managed to grow quite an impressive lump of hair on your top lip. Yeah, my overlip adornment is indeed uh, well festooned. I, I, I don't know, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hairy if that's what you're trying to say, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't made a donation yet, then then please go have a look at the videos, have a look at the information there. The whole reason behind it is to raise awareness of men's health and, and of cancers that affect men uh, in particular. That's the whole point of November. It's why we grow the moustache. It's uh, why we make fools of ourselves in the videos uh, to give you a bit of a laugh and hopefully you'll donate to us. And the address is uh, mobro.co forward slash forum. So if you're feeling generous, please uh, do donate to November. And also I have to mention a special AV Forums and Sony event being held in London on the 28th of November. Uh, where the main attraction is the first UK showing of their VW1000 4K projector, as well as the VW95 3D machine and the HW30 budget model. It's free to attend the event and numbers are limited, so check out the thread on the front page or in the projectors forum for all the details. And uh, hopefully we'll see you there on the 28th of November. Now, Steve, uh, first showing of the 4K projector. And unlike the JVCs, uh, this is actually a 4K native projector. So I feel it is genuinely 4K. So I've got to, I've got to say that I'm 
really looking forward to seeing this in action, to be honest, and seeing how it performs. Uh, obviously, this, the, the same issues apply, which is there's no 4K material. But uh, anyway, it'll be interesting to see what 2K material looks like um, projected at 4K. Um, and uh, yeah, as you say, Phil, um, the first, I guess it'd be the first demonstration in the UK, isn't it? It is. It's first public showing. And um, although it hasn't been confirmed, I would, I would guess that some NHK 4K native material will be there to be shown. Um, and I've got to say, I've seen that in the past and it is well worth seeing. So if you're free on the 28th of November in central London, it begins at 5.30pm, finishes around about 9.30pm. Get yourselves along. There's three projectors there. Uh, Sony technical staff also on hand for any questions and so on. And myself and Steve are going to be there as well, uh, making a video. So if you can't make it along, at least uh, you can have a look at the video and see what you missed. So we move on and head to Russell, who's looked at a new speaker package from Paradigm, and uh, you were suitably impressed with what you saw. Um, yeah, typical of the breed. They're, you know, they're a sort of a six-inch high little satellite thing. I must confess that when I heard they were coming, if they hadn't had the Paradigm name on the front, I probably wouldn't have taken them too seriously, but they did sound very nice indeed. Um, all of the technology in them is, is trickled down from their reference series. It's just all made that little bit smaller, obviously. Uh, the build quality of them is, was absolutely fantastic, and... Um, I'm sure as the, as the pictures will probably bear out, the subwoofer in itself is quite a little feat of engineering. Yeah, Russell, how do they count, cram all that into such a small box? What, the subwoofer? Yeah. Uh, well, you've got to see the cutaway drawings, I suppose, and, and it's, it's actually sort of relatively normal driver tech. They've just used a bit of a clever spin on it to support a wide but narrow cone um, and then used neodymium magnets, um, which obviously take up less space as well. Normally in a subwoofer, you've got a very big magnet. But it's just... It's just well, a sen sensible adaptation of their, their existing technology. has to be said that it, the, the form factor does take away something slightly from its performance. You can't squeeze things into weird shapes and not expect to give something up. Um, a few months ago, I reviewed their um, Seismic 110 subwoofer, which is actually the same money. Um, and that was, you know, whereas that was notably nuclear in its performance for, for, for a small one, the, um, the Millennia sub um, g gave away some of that. But then again... You could. It's it's so small. It actually does fit under my sofa. Is is it? It's actually not a package that you can actually buy. You put, mix and match parts if you want to. Yeah, that, that's actually, that's actually true. Yeah, it's um. You can either buy the the speakers as a five point naught or a two point naught package, and then you you sort of use whichever sub you want to, whether it's from from Paradigm or not. They'll they'll work. They'll work with anything. In fact, Paradigm even say you can use the little speakers as just like little desktop computer speakers. Well, you're obviously going to need a separate amp, but yeah, it's a case of mix and match. That's the one I figure most people will buy with it because a it's the same shape and it's got the same name, so that's the one you'll you'll, you'll tend to see. So, Russell, in, in terms of performance, uh, let's you know cut into it and, and get in there with two channel and, and movie performance. Not great uh, size to the speakers in the package, but how did they perform? Um, they performed absolutely excellently. I mean, the the the, the, the clarity and, and the transparency, particularly of the satellites, was absolutely exceptional. Probably helped by the fact because they're so small, there's very little in there to resonate and colour the sound add in an unnecessary way. Um, but they do tend to lean quite heavily on the subwoofer, obviously, because they've got no real bass performance themselves. Um, what, what do you give away compared to a speaker of the same price but larger? I suppose a little bit of that mid-bass um, kick the thing that really gives you the thump in the chest feeling that you get from bigger loudspeakers is absent. But then that's, it would be unfair to say that, that the paradigms alone are guilty, are guilty of that because every small speaker that size is guilty of that. Um, but so they did make up for it with an absolutely amazing clarity and, and voices in particular were extremely lifelike and, and, and believable. 
no no nasty overemphasis of sibilance or projected mid-range to try and make things sound impressive. They just sound like a very even little balanced package that was easy to live with day to day. Now, I, I'm looking at the photographs here, and obviously one of them's tipped on its side as a centre speaker, but uh, looking at the photographs, I take it that all, all the satellites are identical? They are all identical. Uh, the centre one does come with a, uh, a different shape stand, um, which was slightly annoying because if you're one of those people who likes to stand stand the centre upright, um, you couldn't do it with the centre because the stand's slightly too short, whereas you could, perversely, take all the other four and turn them on their sides. So I think they might have missed a slight trick with that one. And obviously you've also got the um, the grill badges on one side, but otherwise you know, the actual speaker itself is absolutely identical to the others. I just got around it by hiding the one with the, with the grill on its side at the back. So, uh, I mean... The reason I raise that is obviously the obvious point that, that we always discuss when we talk about speaker packages, Russell, and that is uh, cohesion of the sound stage, uh, especially across the front, is is far better when you've got three identical speakers. Uh, indeed. In fact, that's one of these things, a lot of these little micro packages, because they are all basically the same speaker, tend to do very, very well. Um, but if you want to get a nice even dispersion characteristic across all the seats, ideally you want all three speakers orientated the same way as well. Um, if you align all your drivers in a long horizontal line, you cannot possibly make it disperse left to right as evenly as if it's a vertically aligned loudspeaker. Um, so, if I've, so I'd always recommend, if you have the room, stand the centre one upright. Um, but yeah, I mean, and again, front to rear, the match was absolutely superb as well, because again, two identical speakers on, on the same duties at the rear. What's the uh, price of the different packages, um, 5.0 and 2.0, Russell? Um, I think it basically breaks down as £250 per loudspeaker from right. memory, so that's £1,250 for um, the five, £500 for two, plus whatever you want to spend on the sub, which in this instance was £1,250 as well, I think. Um, on top of that, as we've discussed with Paradigm before, there's the optional £300 um, PBK um, subwoofer tuning kit that goes with it. And what um, does that involve, the subwoofer tuning kit? It involves downloading a piece of software onto your um, your PC. You plug a microphone into the PC. You then plug another USB cable into the subwoofer, and it uses the PC to measure the in-room response from the subwoofer in a number of positions. I think a minimum of five and a maximum of ten. Now that doesn't mean you have to measure ten seats, and God knows most of us don't have you know ten seats in their front room. So you take as many measurements as you can around the area where people will most likely sit. Um, and then it sort of it you know finds where the room dimensions are caused a bit of a peak in the response and tunes them down. Maybe gives a light lift to some of the, the higher frequency dips and it just gives you a much, much firmer and tighter bass experience throughout the room. Um, but as I say, it's a £300 option. Now, What's the 300 quid? What are you paying for? The software? You're paying, well, one, you're paying for the microphone, okay, which isn't, the microphone. isn't quite a common or garden microphone because it actually has the digital to analog conversions, uh, sorry, digital to analog converters in the microphone. Um, and this makes it sort of broad and because it then plugs in with a USB cable. It, it, its performance is, is largely independent of the cable. Um, I suppose with some other microphones, you could argue that if you buy a 10 meter lead rather than a 5 meter one with a normal analog microphone, then the, 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 the electrical characteristics of that cable need to be taken into account. Because in this instance, the cable is only carrying a digital signal, it doesn't have to. So, um, so you get so basically you get the microphone, a rather natty little um, mini mic stand, which they have improved. Um, 
improved recently. It's sort of cranked around all sorts of funny little angles, so you can lean it over a sofa. Um, whereas the old one was just like a, a big rod on a big metal base, which was great, but it meant you had to move your sofa if you actually wanted to get the microphone in the middle of where your head would be when you were sitting. So you get that, the software. The software itself is calibrated to the microphone. You are guaranteed to get the same response from different microphones, but if you've got a different microphone, you'd, ha- you'd have to um, get the matching piece of software for it. And that's basically about it, really. Like, and then what you put in, you put into the software, it's like room dimensions, position. No, the, no, no, that. No, no, no need for all of that. You just, um, just, just, just hit the button and let it run its test tones. And when it tells you to move the microphone somewhere else, move it somewhere else in, in a broadly intelligent fashion. You know, put it on the floor. Don't put it on the ceiling because you're never going to listen to, you're never going to listen to your subwoofer there. Um, try and keep away from the corners of rooms unless you absolutely sit there yourself. And just, you know, just do what it tells you. When it's done, it's done. Unhook. I mean, seriously, I've used the PBK enough times now. If it says it's this, it's that. I tend to use it once, put it back in its box, chuck it away. Um, well, not chuck it away, obviously, but you know what I mean? Put it out of the way. Um, it may be a better option for people buying packages like that who aren't inveterate tweakers like me to consider getting their dealer to do the install for them so they don't have to pay for it or you know, rent it for a one-off fee. I've heard it suggested by Paradigm. That's actually what some of the dealers do. Because, um, you know, 300 pounds. As a kit with one of their four, five, six thousand pound um, subwoofers, um, great, 300 pounds. You barely notice it. When you're spending, only spending 1,250 on the sub in the first place, it seems a bit rich. Yeah, yeah. Now, Russell, the, the obvious question uh, that's going to get raised, if it hasn't already been raised in the feedback section or the review, is uh, the Paradigms versus the Kef T305s, which you reviewed recently, both lifestyle packages. So um, what are the differences there? Um, yeah, in, in forum land, people are tend to want to always, you know, is, is X better than Y, is A better than B, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're totally different speakers. Um, for starters, the Kef's, I suppose, really major in hanging on your wall and only, you know, really sticking 30 millimetres out from it. They do sacrifice in the process of doing that perhaps some, you know, transparency of sound. They're just a nice, easy-to-use loudspeaker. They'll work with cheap receivers and, and whatnot and give give a nice sound the paradigms are a bit less forgiving um obviously they'll stick a bit further out from the wall but the flip side to that is um if you have got a, a better amplifier with them they'll show up the difference and they you know they can deliver um a, a more revealing sound so but again anybody who thinks right the kef that's my speaker because it's 30 mil thick and will fit flat on my wall won't even be looking at the paradigms anyway or did you award the the paradigms i awarded them a highly recommended um well worth a look Perhaps you know, perhaps not for everybody because they are quite demanding of your source components. But a super little speaker, all the same. Excellent. So that's the paradigms. Uh, thanks for that, Russell. We're going to move on. We're going to talk about uh, 3D projectors. Believe it or not, I think we've talked talked about 3D projectors for the last six months, but uh, a little bit different this time because we've now have the, I guess, Steve, the cheapest of all of them uh, now in the market. It comes from Optoma. It's a DLP single chip, and it's the HD33. That's right, Phil, it, and it's one thousand. Well, it's, it's, it's SRP is one thousand uh, three hundred and fifty quid, you know, which is a staggering uh, price point for a three D projector. When you consider that this well, this time last year we had uh, JVC launching the uh, the X three, which at uh, about three and a half thousand quid at the time was the uh, was by far and away the cheapest three D projector on the market. There wasn't really anything else in its price point. It pretty much had that area of the market to itself. Um, and in the last, but in the last sort of two months, we've seen um, uh, Panasonic launching a, a 3K projector. Um, we've seen, um, who else? We've seen Sony with a 3K projector. Now we've got um, 
JVC coming back again to the market with the X30, which is going to be around about that price point as well. And then we, suddenly we got out of there, out of the blue, we've got Otoma, who've got the HD33 at 1,350 and the uh, HD83, which you're taking a look at, Phil, which is what's that retaining for? 2,000 pounds? 2,300. 2,300, yeah. So um, we're talking about, you know, not just sub 3K. But in one in one case, sub two k. In fact, you know, sub one and a half k. So a massive. I mean, we're talking about price points here that are comparable with three D TV, um, and you're talking about you know big screen projectors. So that's that's a, a you know a big shift in pricing uh, in that's, the space of just a year, which is which is quite remarkable, really. And that means they're going, pretty soon they're going to straight out under one k, doesn't it, for those yeah, it very same projectors? Won't be long, uh, Russell. Won't be long. That's, that's astonishing doing. drop in one year, isn't it? It is. It is. When you consider that, you know, half the reason, I suppose, for new tech is to try and keep the margin for at least some period of time. But these days, it seems as though, uh, you know, the margin gets squeezed almost immediately. Um, I mean, TVs are the same. TVs, you've already got, you know, you're already getting 3D TVs that are costing less than 500 quid. So um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing how quickly 3D st- stopped being, uh, you know, a major new feature and become almost standard. Um, anyway, the HD33 is, uh, is, is the cheapest of the Optoma 3D projectors. Uh, as I said, it's £1,350 um, uh, retail price. And I've got to say, I had to keep reminding myself when I was reviewing it, that that's all it cost, because it really was a, a, a damn good little projector. The, the 2D performance was was very good. As you said, Phil, it's a single chip DLP. I, I used a friend of mine who's very susceptible to rainbows to just check how bad they were. And in fact, actually, he said that uh, that the uh, in 2D mode the rainbows were, were, were quite minimal, hardly saw them at all. And in fact, interestingly, in 3D he didn't, he never saw them at all. And that's, that's something he's experienced looking at other um, single chip GLP projectors in 3D. On uh, he saw the um, Sim2 Nero One at uh, at, at Bristol Manchester, and once again that's a single chip. And and he said he couldn't see any rainbows with uh, with 3D materials. So maybe it's something to do with the glasses. I'm not quite sure. But uh, interesting that uh, with the Optoma, considering how much it costs. Um, uh, very, very, very rare uh, rainbows in 2D and none at all in 3D. Um, very bright image. It's it's, a, it's quite a bright for, for projector, uh, which is obviously good for two reasons. One, it means that your 2D image has got a bit of punch to it, but it also means more importantly that when you get to 3D and you lose 75% of the brightness when you're wearing the glasses, uh, you still have a reasonably bright image. Uh, I've got to say the 3D performance was quite remarkable. Um, once again, I'm amazed at how quickly uh, in the space of just a year, 3D performance has improved. Uh, you know, even at this price point now, the 3D performance, very, very rare that you saw crosstalk. It really was quite incredible in terms of, uh, uh, um, you know, the um, the lack of artifacts, brightness, um, the, the motion handling, which is always a strong point with DLP anyway. Uh, I was genuinely quite, quite gobsmacked at how good the 3D looked on a projector that only cost £1,350. Now, of course, you know, when you're talking about something this cheap, something has to give. Uh, and in the case of the HD33, um, you, there's no that um, you can calibrate the grayscale, but there's no obviously no no color management system on it. Uh, but then again, there isn't one on the X3 either, or the X30, um, and that's uh, double more than double the price. And the big problem is that there's no uh, lens shift at all. So positioning the the projector is going to be very important in terms of uh, you know if you if you if you buy it and how large your room is in distance to your screen. Um, there's no lens shift. Um, there's a very minimal zoom as well. Zoom ratio is quite small. And it's manual focus. So, yes, there's a few little things. But overall, uh, you know, for £1,350, 
a remarkable value and, and, and a worthy winner of a Best Buy award for both performance and value. Steve, you're using words like incredible and so on, but I guess, I mean, what what we have to point out is that this is a £1,300 projector. So in terms of overall uh, picture performance, it's not going to compete with a with a £3,000 projector in terms of dynamic range and, and contrast ratio. No, absolutely, Phil. I mean, obviously, in terms of uh, the black levels, they were you know, fairly mediocre. Um, as you expect for something in that price point, and certainly comparing it to in 2D mode with with my X X3, uh, you know there was a, there's a vast difference in terms of performance. There, you know, you get you get an image that's it's far more cinematic on the X3 than you ever would on the uh, on the HD 33. But as I say, at that price point, you know, you had to keep reminding yourself that it was that cheap because I mean, it, it, as I say, it was it was a good performance for for, for the money, um, and and the image, uh, you know, like I say, said earlier. Um, DLP, the motion handling was excellent in it. Um, you know, it was very, very sharp, of course, because you know, single chip. There's no alignment of three chips, um, so you had a very sharp image. Loads and loads of detail and high definition content. Um, out of the box color performance uh, was was great, but the uh, remarkably the um, the grayscale performance was absolutely superb out of the box. Um, you know, almost reference level, which was was quite surprising. Um, you could tweak it a little bit with with, with the calibration controls, but. Uh, but a, a really good, a great grayscale performance, uh, and overall a very pleasing picture. And as I said, the 3D performance, you, you know, I, I was I'm amazed at how quickly a 3D performance has improved um, over just the course of a year in terms of particularly crosstalk. There really was very little crosstalk at all, hardly saw any. Um, and as I said, a nice, bright uh, 3D image, uh, good handling of motion in 3D, genuinely, uh, genuinely impressive for, for, for what is, you know, genuinely quite a small amount of money for a projector. You mentioned that, obviously, it sacrifices something in the way of black levels compared to its more expensive brethren. But, I mean, speaking as somebody who's just sold, you know, what was a well-rated projector for its black levels at its price point from three, four years ago, how does it compare to something like that? How would, you know, what... what, Because it's not often that easy to find these things to demo. Because, you know, people like me, you don't go to places and find many of these things to demo side by side like you guys get. Yeah, I, I so, would yeah. I would say that the uh, the HD thirty three would probably have the same black levels as the HC six thousand because you're talking about four year old tech there uh, with the Mitsubishi uh, things have moved on quite quite a bit in terms of uh, not only black level but in in terms of uh, dynamic range in the image um, so I think what you're buying now at round about the thirteen hundred pound mark is what was round about the four thousand pound mark two or three years ago. Right, okay, that's interesting. I mean, moving on, I mean, I've been reviewing the the 83, which is a £1,000 more than the uh, HD 33 that Steve's just been talking about. At that price point, again, uh, in in terms of black levels, in terms of shadow detail, it does struggle a little bit. Um, it's not in the same uh, league as the Panasonic or the, the JVC or the Sony, but then those are another £1,000 on top. So uh, there is a difference in terms of uh, price point and performance, um, the the 83's more a home cinema projector, so it's designed to be more of a, a home cinema projector. Where Steve, I think the HD 33, I, I mean, I would class that as an all rounder. Uh, would you agree with me on that? It's more of yeah, a sort yeah, of games, TV, films, that kind of thing. Definitely, definitely, I can class it as an all rounder. Phil, as I said, the um, you know quite a very bright 2D image means that you could use it. You could use it in a room with some ambient light, which you wouldn't be able to do with um, with you know home theatre um, tailored projectors. So yeah, you're right. Gaming, um, TV, 
sports um, and movies. It's, it's great for that kind of stuff. The other thing that's interesting is it uh, it uses, um, and same with the HD83 that you've got, they come with um, um, an RF emitter, which is a tiny little thing, about an inch, inch square, isn't it, Phil? Um, that uses, instead of using infrared, uh, which needs line of sight, it's just a, it's RF, so it's radio, radio frequency. Um, you can put it put the emitter anywhere you like, really. I've got to say, compared to projectors I've, I've had recently, like the Panasonic and the Sony, where I was having real problems bouncing the IR off the off the screen that I use. It won't be the same for everybody. It just happened to be the, the screen that I use, which is acoustically transparent. But you needed careful positioning of the IR transmitter for the glasses to pick up the signal and stay in sync. Whereas, like you say, with these RF glasses, I mean, you just you put the, the emitter wherever you like and you can walk around the room, face away from the screen, face wherever you like, and, and the glasses are always in sync and, and always working. Yeah, I think the glasses that they are using are, are, are their branded version of the Monster 3D Max glasses. And they're, they're quite good glasses. Comfortable to wear. Um, as you say, Phil, never lost sync. Um, you know, um, not not didn't seem to affect the colour too much and they weren't too dark. So overall, I thought the glasses that they came with, you know, cause once again, considering the price point, uh, were very good. Yeah, so I mean, touching on the, the HD83, like I say, it's more home cinema based, uh, more for a theatre room. Um, you've got more calibration controls on there. So you have a full CMS as well as the, the white balance. Um, it's got frame interpolation on there, which... Some people might like for sports, I always switch it off. There was some interpolation on the HD33 as well, but luckily I didn't use it, yeah. Right. Pure pure motion, is it? What do they call it? Yeah, Magic. pure motion. So so even at £1,300, you're getting frame interpolation yeah, added nowadays. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got to say, in terms of noise level, in 2D, perfectly fine to sit next to it. In 3D, it's a little bit noisy because it obviously has to bump the, the lamp up. But again... You can say the same about the JVCs and the the Sony and the Panasonic. They, they all do that to get extra brightness out of them. In terms of black levels, there is a difference uh, between the, the £3,000 mark and the £2,300 mark. I, I found the dynamic range wasn't great with the 83 in terms of shadow detail. Um, so when when you're looking at uh, particularly dark scenes within, uh, within films, uh, where you should be seeing really... Uh, dark shadow detail uh, that you would see on the JVC and other models. Uh, it's just a, it's just a black, black lump basically. Uh, so that is a sh- that is the shortcoming. But again, uh, I found that with a lot of uh, the the more budget conscious DLP projectors, they're a little bit more like that. They're a little bit more restricted when it comes to the the shadow detail and so on. Yeah, it's the same with the HD thirty three. Obviously, uh, I was using a scene from the beginning of Avenger the Sith. Um, and you could see um, with the JVC, you could see details in Anakin Skywalker's uh, robes, you know, because they're black on black. Um, and, and but that, that detail just wasn't there with the HD thirty three. As you say, the shadow details were, were wanting. The other problem I had, and I know you had the same issue, is it's really slow HDMI handshaking. Uh, Takes up ten seconds yeah, sometimes yeah, to, which, to complete the handshake. Which which was I, I found that more annoying when I was watching the extras than. Because I mean, you start a movie at the beginning, you watch it all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I found it more more annoying with extras and switching inputs and that kind of thing. It just took forever. I mean, the sound would start and then ten seconds later, the the image would then appear on screen. Um, and I don't think it was anything to do with the with the HD uh, 83's color wheel or anything like that. I just think it was really slow handshake with the HDMI signal. Uh, the other thing I noticed is uh, letterbox mode. 
Um, now we use that for anamorphic projection, which at £2,300, the, the fact that it gives you that option is great. Uh, and I think it's it's even on the cheaper model as well. I think this yeah. is something that and Optoma really are pushing. Uh, they really are pushing that at the moment and obviously they, they have a, an anamorphic system that they will sell you as well as the projector so I think for about £5,000 you can have the the 83 in a anamorphic lens and a sled which is great but in 3D mode when you when you switched on letterbox uh, it just completely did something really strange with the image and it, it just doesn't look right at all so uh, obviously a software glitch in there but that was the only problem I, th- I think I found uh, in terms of using it uh, with anamorphic lens and so on. Yeah, same with the HD33. Um, although, although, as you say, the fact it's got that at all on a price on a projector at that price point is uh, quite impressive, actually, from from Optoma. Um, yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think both of us felt that. Uh, well, I mean, I gave it a Best Buy. Have you signed on the war jet for? Uh... Not yet, uh, but in terms of money's worth, I think the two thousand three hundred pound price point. There's not a lot of competition in that, in that area at the moment. It seems to be in the £3,000 mark and then £1,500 and under mark, Steve. So it's going to have some of the market to itself. It's obviously well designed for the, the custom install market as well to put in as a uh, a home theatre projector or a gaming uh, projector for uh, rooms like that. Really nice, bright image. Uh, so if you've got a room where you can't get it completely black, it will stand up well. Obviously, you'll lose a bit of contrast by doing that but you know that happens with all projectors um but in terms of really bright scenes um such as you know the planet earth demo scenes that i use and so on uh, when it was really bright and colorful it was really bright and colorful and quite natural looking as well yeah definitely phil i think as far as competition goes the only projectors i can think of that might might be in the same a similar price point maybe will be the new epsons possibly and, and, I, and i think one of them may, may even have uh, cms at that price point so That'll be interesting when we get to look at those uh, fairly soon, hopefully. But yeah. otherwise, I think we, we've seen that will be that after that point, we've seen almost all the projectors that are coming out at this particular point: Sony, Panasonic, uh, Optima, JVC is coming soon, Sim2, and uh, Epson. So yeah. we should have a fairly fairly decent uh, spread of reviews to cover everything by the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, it's you know the Dark Knights are here now. No excuses not <laughs> to use your projectors, folk, or go out and buy them. <laughs> and there's plenty of choice this year, so. I haven't decided on a badge yet, but I have been impressed with the 83, and likewise, it seems you've had a, a great time with the 33. Yeah, definitely. So moving on from uh, 3D projectors that we are reviewing at the moment, interesting that Peter Jackson, uh, who's working on Hobbit at the moment, is filming the entire film on uh, Red Epic digital cameras, which are uh, 5K resolution, Steve, uh, but doing something uh, a little bit different in terms of uh, they are using them for 3D, so two Red Epics together. But the thing that I found interesting was not quite the 3D, uh, but the fact that they're shooting this at 48 frames per second, um, which kind of stuck in my mind, and I'm not sure how to take it. What about you? Uh, yeah, I must admit, I'd, I mean, I understand why they're doing it. I know Peter Jackson's been in a lot of conversations with uh, James Cameron, you know, obviously he's helped develop a lot of the 3D technology over the last few years, uh, and their view was that in 3D, um, camera motion and motion in front of the frame suffered somewhat at 24 frames a second. So their theory is that shooting at 48 frames a second, you'll get a much smoother image. But of course, we immediately think, hang on, is this going to start looking like video? Because the thing about film is it has a very, well, 
filmic look, hence the term, uh, you know, and and that's partly down to technology that's, that's used to make it. I mean, um, it used to be in the days of actual physical film that, you know, the grain was, was part of the chemical structure of the film itself. And the fact it's 24 frames a second, although admittedly when it's projected at the cinema, they use a mirror to, to, to double the frame rate to 48 frames, but it's still shot at 24 frames a second. That gave it a certain uh, you know, filmic motion to it. Um, now they're talking about shooting and, and projecting at 48 frames a second for The Hobbit. Uh, you're right, Phil. I mean, it, it does. It does you, do, you do wonder, how is this going to look? Is it going to look like film? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, I mean, we play about with obviously not red epics are like 60 grand a piece and then you've got to buy all the accessories to go with them but uh you know i'm using a, a panasonic uh, avc cam which is quite a, a high-end professional video camera where you can use interchangeable lenses and so on you can shoot at any frame rate on that however if you're shooting at 50p or 60p it, it does it without sound but you can shoot at 24 25 uh 30 with sound and 24 and 25, it's hard to tell the difference because of the frame rate that, that, that it's using. And it has a natural look when you look at 24p. Even in a video camera, it has that almost motion blur that you get when, you, when you're looking at 24p or 25p. Just because you're shooting at the low frame rate, you get that, that natural motion blurring. Um, which looks natural to the eye. Whereas if you shoot at the higher frame rates, yes, I mean, consumer camcorders have been doing it for a year now where you can shoot as 50p or 60p, and it looks like a video camera. And you look at TVs that, that have frame interpolation, what they're doing is they're recreating the frames. So uh, if you're watching something in 24p, most of, the, most of them will either do it at 48, uh, 72, or, or 96 and they recreate the frames to make things look super smooth. Now, for sports and stuff like that, I can see the point in that because... Shot know, on video anyway, right? Yeah, it's shot on video, so if it looks a bit smoother, it looks a bit more natural in terms of fast movement, then great, fast frame rate, it's going to work. In terms of movies, um, it's it's not supposed to look natural. That That's that's the first point. People, like they say about HD, it's like it should be look, like looking out the window. Rubbish. No, it, it's not supposed to look like that. It's supposed to disconnect you and, and take you into something, which is normally a, a narrative story, where the director also uses a lot of artistic lighting and setup and that kind of thing, mixed with the grain from film. I mean, some, some directors will go for really uh, different kinds of stocks to get different kind of grain structure and that kind of thing. You can do that with, with digital. You can do it with the Red Epic in post-production. If you look at the social network, that was filmed all on the, the Red Epic. And it looks like film because it was shot at 24 frames. And in post-production, they made it look like film. My concern is if he's gone for 48 frames per second and they're not going to do anything to keep that cinematic look, if they're just doing it for the 3D side of things, it, watching it in 2D, if it's going to be projected at, at 48 frames per second, my concern is it's going to look like video. It's going to look like it was shot on a, a consumer camcorder, but with a million pound lighting. Yeah, I mean, he actually says it is a, a um, production diary that was posted last week. He's um, been producing them on sort of every few months while they've been shooting the Hobbit films down in New Zealand. And this was the latest one, the fourth one he's done. And this was specifically about 3D. And in that, he talks about using the 5K resolution on the epic on the epic red epic cameras, and at 48 frames a sec per second, the 3D is like looking through a window. And as you say, Phil, I'm not really that's that's not exactly what you necessarily want to achieve when you're talking about a film. It's, it's not reality. You know, it is a film. It is you know, there's a certain degree of artifice to that, uh, and and you know, it, it's not meant to be like looking through a window. 
Uh, now, presumably, he understands that because I mean, I, I'm assuming that shooting the Hobbit, they're going to stylistically, at least in some way, you know, tie that in with the already made Lord of the Rings movies. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that he's not going to go, you know, he's not going to go too far in, in the other direction. I mean, he does say in the in the in the video, interestingly, he says, you know, had he had this technology available. 10 years ago when they shot Lord of the Rings, he had shot that in 3D as well, but at the time the technology just wasn't there. Although interestingly, he did take a lot of 2D, uh, 3D still photographs on the sets of, of Lord of the Rings, uh, which he said in the, in, the, in the video posted last week, he mentions those. And in fact, um, I've seen him using that camera in some documentary footage from, from Lord of the Rings. And he said he might include um, might include those photographs as you know extras on some future 3D Blu-ray of, of um, presumably either Lord of the Rings or, or if they do a conversion of that or of the Hobbit. So that was interesting that he's he's been thinking you know, he's been thinking about 3D even as far back as 10 years ago when they were shooting Lord of the Rings. But as you say, Phil, uh, you know, you know, I, Peter Jackson, James Cameron, you know, smart guys, and they're great filmmakers. So, you know, I, I still have a lot of faith in them. But, uh, you know, when they first mentioned the concept of shooting at 48 frames per second, my immediate thought was the same as yours, which is, is this going to look like video? Because I don't want it to look like video. I want it to look like film. Uh, also, curiously, I'm, I'm kind of curious as how they're going to project it in in cinemas where there isn't a projector that could do 48 frames per second, but at, at 24 frames per second, they presumably just miss out alternate um, frames. I'm not quite sure. Uh, well, I, I think that one is basically, I think most of cinemas nowadays have digital projection. I mean, it, it could be like it was when DTS first came about, where you can only show uh, that movie if, if your cinema has uh, the right equipment to, to show it, I think uh, you might find. And with a title like The Hobbit, you know, if, if the distributor turns around and says, well, you can only... You can only uh, uh, show this film if you upgrade to the latest digital projectors. You'll find most of the chains will update to the the latest digital projector, so it so will I, be uh, it will be shown at forty eight frames per second. Yeah, so I suppose the thought perhaps perhaps I didn't really mean the cinema as much, but what about twenty four P Blu Ray? Because at some point it's going to have to come out on Blu Ray, um, and that will be at twenty four P and not forty eight P, obviously. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what they do to do that. Also, the interesting thing in in the documentary, in the in the, the ten minute sort of video he posted last week, they were talking about the sets that they were building um, and how they were deliberately um, making them uh, boosting the colours. So they so they looked really artificial uh, and and way too you know intense in terms of the colours because apparently the the, ep, the red epic camera sucks a lot of the colour out when they're shooting, uh, and then they sort of you know they so they make the, deliberately make the sets you know uh, kind of overly bright and, and saturated uh shoot them on the, on, on the cameras and then in, in post-production with, with digital grading um you know and then adjust the colors then which was another interesting thought because i know there's been a lot of discussion uh after the most recent blu-ray release of lord of the rings about the color, color timing on those films particularly uh fellowship of the ring he's, he's got all the tools he needs with with a red from what i've seen anyway in terms of uh, the grading side of things. I mean, as soon as soon as the files off the computer, the, you can do whatever you like with it. As long as you've set your exposure right, everything else you can play about with, which is interesting. What, um, what would be the uh, what, would be, what would be the resolution equivalent of thirty five millimeter film? About four K or 5K? it's it's round about that. I mean, obviously it's film, so it doesn't have pixels. So, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of hard, but the the equivalent is round about four K. Um, now most. Uh, most studios work in the 2K realm at the moment in terms of digital intermediates. So, but do they tend to shoot at 2K or shoot at 4K and then work in 2K for 
post-production? It varies from studio to studio, director to director, post-production to post-production. Uh, I mean, once they decide on what they're going to do then, all the way through the production line, they will keep that the same. But uh, it's a choice made mostly in terms of financial, I would imagine, in terms of scanning a, a 2K, is, I would imagine is cheaper than 4K. I don't know precisely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when they do restorations. You know, I mean, for example, the recent Blu-ray release of Ben-Hur, that was an 8K uh, scan of the original um, 65 millimeter negative. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, which I know was incredibly expensive for Warner Brothers to yeah. do. But then you're talking uh, about 65 mil, which... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. You know, that's, that's so, twice, you know, 35 mil in terms of resolution. And hence the reason they had to go to 8K. And then I think they actually did the actual restoration. Having done an 8K scan, they did the actual restoration at 4K that obviously created the well, equivalently to say roughly 2K um, for the Blu-ray. Um, interestingly, something like Star Wars or Attack of the Clones was shot on 1080p cameras. So, I mean, that resolution of that is always only going to be uh, 1080 by 1920. And if we ever move to a world where we're all watching 4K content, you'd have to scale up the uh, the original uh, data files for that film in order to, um, in order to create a 4K uh, copy, wouldn't you? And I, actually, I noticed watching some of the uh, deleted scenes on the most recent on the recent Blu-ray release. They had a couple of deleted scenes from Attack of the Clones, which is obviously raw camera footage. It, it looked awful, flat. It looked like what it was video. Um, they must have done an awful lot of stuff in post production to make it look more like film. <laughs> but the actual raw footage on the deleted scenes looked shockingly flat. Yeah, and- but but then again, um, I don't know if you're aware of how these cameras work. But if you're you're, you're working in the realms of the the Red Epic and the uh, Alexa from Ari, um, those cameras shoot flat. That's that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. But Phil, I mean that that's now. Okay, uh, I'm talking about the, the problem is Attack of the Clones was shot ten years ago on cameras that were still in their infancy. And you have to wonder how robust that's going to be uh, you know, uh, as, as a source material 20 years down the line. I mean, as you say, I mean, even if, despite what Lucasfilm might say, they have the camera negative. I don't care what they say. They've got the camera negative of Star Wars uh, that was shot back in 76. And one day, I'm sure, we'll, you know, if they were needed to, they could do some you know, high-resolution scan of that. But when it comes to uh, Cack of the Clones particularly, um, and to a certain extent, Avenger the Sith, we're talking about, you know, data files that were recorded at 1080p, uh, and that's it forever. If things develop in terms of, I mean, we're talking about earlier in this podcast about going to see the 4K Sony um, you know, later in the, um, this month. Well, you know, that, that that's already around the corner then. So we're talking about 4K capability now. Um, it won't be long before the delivery system catches up with the projection systems and we have 4K content. And suddenly, uh, you know, things like, Attack of the Clones are starting to look quite dated. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, obviously, the point that you raised about uh, 48 frames per second, how it's going to be on Blu-ray. Well, technically, it can't happen at the moment. It's not in the spec. And in terms of HDMI, uh, it only works at 24 frames per second 4K at the moment in terms of the specification for HDMI. Now, we are moving to a 4K world. Sony have launched their 4K projector. We know that other companies are working on 4K uh, panels. I mean, JVC uh, were displaying 4K projectors and, and uh, LCDs well, two years ago, three years ago at IFA. So we're heading in that direction. In terms of what you're saying, I think, yes, we're talking about there's going to have to be a new delivery system in terms of 4K material if we're going to have 4K displays because not 
it's going to be a bit like when with the launch 1080p TVs and there wasn't a lot of HD. Yes, there's going to be a lot of upscaling done, but um, it does point to them moving things along in terms of a new delivery system to go with the the display devices, which have been released now and are going to come in the future. Yeah, the other interesting thing, Phil, is not only do we need a new delivery system in order to deliver the kind of content that the projectors are now capable of, but also uh, a lot of people have been saying that you know Blu-ray may be the last physical medium that, that you know that after that people will move to download. Well, if you're talking about 4K, no no way we're we going to be downloading files that size. That will take forever. It takes long enough as it is. Yeah. Um. You know, if you're talking 4K, you're talking some kind of disc. Um. I don't know whether it'll be some sort of you know eight-layer Blu-ray or whatever they're going to be using as as the delivery system, but but certainly you know there's no way you're going to be downloading that kind of content online you know, over the internet um, anytime soon. No, um, certainly I'm not going to be <laughs> with no. my connection. No, I mean the, the infrastructure. Oh, just the, connect, the connection. I mean, faster and faster connections are getting rolled out at a hell of a rate, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, to two or three people. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, okay, I mean, I'm lucky because I sit in a Virgin Media area and I'm sitting here on 50 megabits per second. I could have 100 BT are talking about rolling out 300 megabits per second. Yeah, I'm two, I'm two megabits per second, Russell. Yeah, yeah but it's going, it's going to happen. Yeah, I don't, I can't yeah. see people buying another disc spinner. Because that's the, the that, that, that's, that's the biggest problem with all the these audio the audio or video formats. They all seem to require that you buy a new piece of hardware to actually play that bloody disc. Yeah, well, that's why they invent yep. these. That's things, why they invent it. Sell more kit. <laughs> that, that's the point I was making at the beginning of the podcast. Because I'm but it's so... getting to that point now with the iPhone generation. People don't expect to have to buy a disc. They just no, simply it... won't go. They, people increasingly won't go near it. Yeah, unless but, they can just download. Yeah, it. but then you, your guy in the street is not going to be an early adopter. Is not going to be buying a four K TV. Um, it's not going to be buying a 4K projector at 20 grand, but these things no, any exist. More than he did, any more than he did buy a, 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 ten, a, a 10 grand 1080p TV. Yeah. But, you know, five years down the line, it's the default technology. You can't buy something that isn't. Yeah. But the the file size that you're talking about, 4K, even on a, on a 300 meg line, it's still going to take hour upon hour for that to come down. I mean, these things are... The last time I saw a 4K projector... They had a 19-inch rack full of hard drives just so they could show the content that they'd filmed natively in 4K. Um, you have to get that data size down, so they either have to come up with a new compression system to compress that down, or they have to come up with another playback system, whether that's a disk system, whether that's a you buy a hard drive. They're going to have to come all, up with something. All I'm saying is, is that they will. Because you've only got to look at history to see that they did. Well, of course they will, because <laughs> you know they're selling three D at the minute. What's the next big thing after three D? Four K, two K. Yeah, so, well, yeah and, and, and I think the problem with three D is it's not selling anywhere near the way they hoped. Um, well, so they're already starting to think. Well, hang on. So three D's not really been as popular as we'd, we'd have liked. What can we sell instead? And that, and, that, and that's clearly going to be four K. I think TV manufacturers now are, are putting a lot more emphasis on on smart TV functions, internet TV, making the TV the center, centerpiece of the home entertainment system or the, of your of your home, basically. Uh, and the next step is is higher resolution because it's a numbers game. You can all, you know people always love big numbers. What's interesting about The Hobbit uh, and and well, it, which is being shot it made as two two films, so two parts. They're coming out in December 2012 and December 2013. Um, you know, you have to wonder: will, will the 3D craze still be going? 
by December 2013. Um, you know, as an, as an analogy, um, in the 1950s 3D craze, uh, Hitchcock made Dial M for Murder in 3D. Um, by the time it came out and he'd finished, apparently he'd finished making it and it was released, 3D found finished and it was never actually shown anywhere in 3D. It was shown in 2D. Um, you know, could The Hobbit be the dial in for murder of our generation? But, you know, um, when it finally does come out in the well, first part in a year's time, because already you're seeing the stats for uh, 3D, 3D viewing figures compared to um, 2D of, of the same film. That people are going for the 2D, um, 2D perform, 2D um, presentation because, well, for a number of reasons. Some people just don't like 3D. Some people think you know, it's cheaper. Um, sometimes they're not happy with things like conversions and from when it's really wishy shot in 2D. But even with 3D native films, there seems to have been, uh, like for example, um, Pirates of the Caribbean 4. Uh, more people saw it in 2D than 3D. So I'll, gu- so I'll guarantee you that I will see it for the first time, both bits in 2D. Absolutely, will you don't not want to be see in 3D. It in 3D, even though it was no, shot no, 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 sorry, 3D. I didn't say that. No, 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 you didn't listen to what I said. I didn't say that. I said I guarantee the first time I see those two, it will be in 2D, because my wife can't see 3D. Ah, right, okay. And that's the problem with 3D. Everybody can, you know, for the most part, people can see higher resolution. They can see better color. Yeah. Half people out there clo- can't see 3D. <laughs> But I mean, there's a couple. Of, I've got but... a couple of chaps at work who said they went to see 3D. Said it looked like he said it looked. He said with the glasses off, it looked like a fuzzy picture. He put the glasses on, it was still a fuzzy picture. He just couldn't see the 3D. The thing with the the dial M analogy is that they're going to get 3D in covertly into your living room, whether you want it or not. This time around, I mean, the manufacturers have they spent so much money on on R and D and. Uh, you just have to look at, at lines like uh, Samsung and so on, who are, are now only making 3D TVs or TVs that are 3D ready. Um, yeah. So it's 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 going to come into your living room whether you want it or not. You know, another two or three years time, the only TVs that you're going to buy, they're going to be 3D ready. Whether you buy the glasses or not is another thing, but it will have that readiness there. Uh, the manufacturers have put just too much money into it. Um, There's so much public apathy towards the whole 3D thing, particularly particularly at home. Uh, I mean, I still, even now, when we're what, well over a year, year and a half into 3D um, TVs at home, and even now, I, I only know a couple of people that have got, well, one or two people that have got 3D TVs, not counting, you know, <laughs> within our little AV forums world. Um, in general public, you, you talk about it, and people are still just not interested. I, I think that the manufacturers have been quite disappointed in terms of the amount of take-up for oh, the yeah, public. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I've got a 3D TV here and I've got 3D projectors in the other room. I very rarely watch 3D content. In fact, the TV in, in the living room, even though I've got Sky 3D and I can watch football in 3D and I can uh, I can watch films in 3D and it doesn't interest me. Well, I have to say, I mean, I, I've actively sought out every 3D Blu-ray that's been released. As long as it was native, I've, I've generally, generally avoided conversions. But na- native 3D stuff that's been shot, I've, I've tried to get hold of. Um, because you've, as you pointed out, Phil, there's not a great deal of uh, content around. Um, and, and now that I've been reviewing them for AV forums as well, so I've seen a lot more 3D content. Uh, one of the big problems is that, that most of the stuff's rubbish. There's not, you know, there's, there's very few really great movies available in 3D, particularly, you know, for adults. I mean, there's a lot of animated stuff. Um, but, but in terms of live action 3D, thin on the ground, and what there is, it, it tends to be the, the cheaper you know, sort of gimmicky looking for a gimmick to their film. Not very good movies to start with. Um, I mean, probably the only big budget one I can think of recently was Pirates of the Caribbean. 
there's a couple of things coming up. I mean, the Tintin movie, but that's animated again. You've got um, uh, Martin Scorsese's Hugo, which comes out at Christmas. That that was shot native 3D live action. Um, there's The Hobbit, of course, coming up um, coming up in, in a year's time. But there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of quality live action 3D content on the horizon at the moment. And, and that's uh, another thing. You know, what, that's what kills kills things as much as you know, bad content is. You know, is, can kill something as much as apathy. Yeah, and and I think that that just points to where the problem is. There's there's just not enough coming out in 3D that that is quality that you want to actually see in 3D. And in fact, The Hobbit, uh, I'll take it or leave it. And I'm going to go and see it just to see what 48 frames per second looks like, because if that's the future, it has to look good. I mean, I'm massively. I'm, I, to be honest, I'm massively excited about The Hobbit. I, I thought Lord of the Rings was fantastic. Uh, I, I really like Jackson as a filmmaker. I'm really looking forward to. Uh, we're looking forward to to The Hobbit. Um, not not ge- generally, but also I'm very interested in seeing what the 3D looks like. Seeing what he does with 3D, and uh, and as you say, Phil, I'm fascinated to see what 48 frames per second looks like because that that will be genuinely something something new in terms of cinema. So. 48 frames per second 3D. It's going to be brilliant for the eight people who go and see it. <laughs> so, no, well, no. You can say like the, so the future will be projectors at 48, 4K, 48 frames per second. That's the way forward. All the people in the editing, editing room said it was fantastic. They should know that. They're the only ones who ever saw it. Yeah. Well, I mean, being serious for a second, I mean, if, if it's for the 3D side of things, and I'll, I'll reserve judgment till I see it, but if, if that's why they're doing it, then I can understand why he's doing that. Uh, for 2D... If he's doing it at 48 frames per second, I think it's going to look strange, especially after 100 years of 24 frames per second. Um, and I guess the other thing is that, you know, you're watching film and we're used to ha- having that disconnect from the real world because you're watching a, a narrative story, um, whether it's sci-fi, whether it's drama, whether it's thriller or whatever. It's it's not real life. And that's my concern. My concern is that it starts looking like a soap opera with million-pound lighting. That's my concern. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you, Phil. Um, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, uh, you know, I, I've been very happy with the way films looked for the last, well, certainly yeah. in my lifetime. Um, well, and uh, if, if they're doing it for, to enhance the 3D effect and make that you know, more pleasurable to watch, that's one thing. Uh, and I get the feeling that is the point of this. It's not to just, you know, do it for 48 frames for 2D. Yeah. It's doing it at 48 frames for 3D. And I know that Cameron's doing the same. I believe he's shooting Avatar 2 and 3 uh, at 48 frames per second as well for 3D. Yeah. Uh, and and I've got no problem with sports broadcasts and that kind of thing with higher frame rates um, because that is video. That's what it's shot on. It's shot on video cameras. That's what it should look like. Uh, but let's just wait and see. Uh, I've got my concerns. I suppose to a certain extent it's a moot point because when it comes out on Blu-ray, it'll be 24p anyway. <laughs> unless we get unless we get this new delivery system. Um, yeah, new delivery system, 4K projector, 48 frames per second, and uh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, and let's just have a have a close eye on CES because that could very well be the big story this year. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Well, I must admit, going back to the beginning of this podcast, I am really looking forward to seeing the Sony in action. To be honest. Yep, and uh, that's 28th of November. Good link there, Steve. Well done. You've earned yeah, your money tonight. I'm a pro. Uh, so only, twi- t- only took an hour. <laughs> <laughs> 28th of November is our event with Sony in central London. Go to the front page. I've got the projectors forum. A big thread in there with all the details. Sign up, come along, have a look, and uh, we'll see you there. And I guess that wraps up the podcast for this evening. It's been a, an interesting discussion, as always. 
So my thanks to uh, Steve Weathers and, of course, to Russell. Thanks very much, guys. And Cheers, uh, don't forget as well, we're also taking part in Movember. It's a good job that this is uh, in audio because uh, we look a right sight at this moment in time. But if you want to donate to us, then please do. It's mobro.co forward slash AV forums. There's also threads on the forums on the front page in general chat and in the Plasma forum. So go and have a look. Have a look at the photographs. Have a good laugh and give us some money. So that wraps it up for this podcast. We're back again 21st of December, and uh, please tune in. Also, the Movies Podcast is out on the 7th of December, Games Podcast on the 14th of December, and we also have the Podcast Extra, which is up on the 28th of November. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.